You are entering the Freedom Hut. The Supreme Court saves DACA, capital murder charge for the Atlanta cop, fired for a Halloween costume two years ago, canceled for cracking knuckles, the Bolton book bombshells, and our $10 trillion budget coming up. Buck Sexton. Permission. Decoding the news and disseminating information with actionable intelligence. One small Make no mistake. America. You're a great American again. This is the Buck Sexton Show. Former CIA analyst. Former member of the NYPD. I can speak for three hours without a phone call. Try doing that sometime. It is Buck Sexton. Now. All right, my friends. Welcome to the Buck Sexton Show. It is an honor and a privilege and a pleasure to have you here with me. That much is for sure. Uh, It has been a tough week. It's only Thursday. But let's be honest about this one. Things are not exactly going the way many of us would want them to in the country right now. There's not a, not a tremendous amount of positive news to celebrate, that's for sure, and some, some tough stuff happening. The latest one that I want to get to, although we will go in detail to the press conference yesterday from the district attorney in Atlanta, who has brought 11 charges, including a capital murder charge against former police officer Rolf in what to me still is a justified, tragic, but justified use of force in Atlanta. Uh, We will spend considerable time on that today. And I want to start, though, with this decision from the Supreme Court. We've already we've had a few decisions recently and also decisions not to decide that are very troubling. If you believe in the rule of law, if you believe the Constitution has meaning and protects all of us and is the foundational document of this polity, then you would have concerns, big ones, about what's happening now. Uh, Yesterday, we had a couple of pieces go up on BuckSexton.com. And thank you so much for the the wartime conservatism piece uh, we had in the in the hundreds of thousands of people read that. So thank you for that. Thank you for spreading that around. Uh, Just to give you a sense, most editorial pages of different websites, because I've written for many, many of them, a standard editorial will get 10,000 readers, 15,000 readers. We are, with that piece, just on BucksXon.com, looks like we were about 10x that. So, uh, and that's, and our website, as you know, is just getting started. We are just building here in the Freedom Hut, my friends. We keep growing and growing and doing better work and reaching more people all the time. We let our work speak for itself. We are on a mission. We're on a mission, and we certainly don't get bogged down in the petty nonsense. So, let's now focus in on this Supreme Court decision on DACA. Usually, when a court decision comes out, because uh, there's, there's limited time that I sometimes will have based on when we're doing the show and when it comes out, I'll read every single word of the decision, and then I'll give you my best distillation of what the arguments were, what it really means. Uh, but in this case, it's really straightforward. You, you don't have to waste your time. You, there's, there's no reason to go too in detail. This is a very politically sensitive, very uh, beloved program of the left, of the Democrat Party, and even a lot of fakey Republicans out there, a lot of pseudo-Republicans. They think that the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals program is a good thing, needs to happen, and should not be overturned even by the executive branch that put it initially into place. 
Let's just do a quick review, shall we? Back in 2012, President Obama, recognizing that he was not going to get the deal, and you remember there were some Republican senators, the Gang of Eight, that wanted to go along with this, the deal for a comprehensive amnesty on illegal immigration. Right? That's what we were told. It was supposed to be a pathway to citizenship, as I have described it. It is much more a conveyor belt to citizenship because once you give amnesty, the only thing that really happens is the amnesty. All the other things, pay back taxes, pay a fine, learn English, take a citizenship test, all that stuff doesn't happen. Oh, and then there's also the additional lawsuits, which if you go back to Reagan, that's right, St. Reagan, you go back to Reagan's amnesty, which he admitted for anybody who wants to say, Buck, don't be too hard on Reagan. Look, you're a great man, great president, but he got swindled on amnesty. He admitted it. There's no way around it. It was very clear that he made a made a big mistake. And that amnesty was still being people were still suing under Reagan's. I think it was 1986. Producer Mark fact check me on that one in case I'm off. Reagan's 1986 amnesty, people were suing um, into the 2010s, claiming that they were covered under that amnesty. Okay, so once you say, oh, you were illegally in the country, we're just going to let you stay. Guess what? Everyone tries to find a way to be part of the you who gets to stay. So now we go to DACA. Oh, and that's an important concept to keep in mind, because does anyone think that DACA is really ever going to be rescinded now? Does anyone think that uh, this is going to be something that the next administration? Yep, 1986 is correct. Thank you, producer Mark. So this is what happened. President Obama came in and said, well, I'm going to use a pen. I'm going to use a phone. I'm going to use a pen and a phone. I'm going to get it done. I'm going to go my way. Uh, you know, that's how it's going to be. Uh, we're going to get this thing signed, and it's going to be DACA. And we're going to get it done. Uh, it's good. So we have this whole... DACA program. And remember, they also wanted to do something called DAPA, Deferred Action for the Parents of the Arrivals. So after the pulling on the heartstrings that occurred to get everybody to say, well, if you were brought here illegally, but through no fault of your own, and there's a sympathy for that, no question. There's a sense that this is uh, something. Look, I, I, you know, I'm a nice person. Right? I don't know what else to say. And sometimes that can come into conflict with my sense of what is uh, legally necessary. Or, or I can have second thoughts about this. I can have multiple thoughts in my head at the same time. Uh, so I can understand. And there, there is sympathy for people that are in that situation. But just I'm trying to note for all of you that the moment that everyone started to say, OK, fine, if you really were brought here as a child, oh, what constitutes being a child? Then they said DAPA, which is deferred action for the parents of the. So the people who brought the child illegally get to tell Americans, hey, it's not my kid's fault. Don't don't deport them or even keep them out of legal status. And, you know, they should be citizens and get in-state tuition and get driver's licenses. Oh, no. Then the parents who brought the illegal child, it's like, well, you're not going to separate me from my child, obviously. So I need to be covered, too. So that just means amnesty, folks. Right. I mean, and now everyone's going to be a guardian of somebody, a parent of somebody who was brought here, or they're going to be a necessary component of this, or the chain migration is going to kick in. I mean, it means that everyone's going to get to stay who came here illegally. And as a society, as a country, we're going to have to face up to what has happened at some point here, which is the, the largest illegal migration of people in the modern era to have occurred in the Western Hemisphere. And the social and, and long-term political implications of that, 
and that it is ongoing. It's continuing. It keeps happening. You know, I've been down to the border numerous times. I've met with Border Patrol at length. I understand what they face. And they all, I just want to note this, they all laugh at the notion that it's still 11 million illegals in this country. The people that are tasked every day with determining, you know, with stopping people from coming into the country illegally, those individuals uh, will tell you there's no way that the number is 11 million maybe 20, more like 25, probably. So I, I just want to note that, too. But, oh, the, the, the survey, the census data that, you know, asked me, oh, you know, you can't even have, pardon me, the Supreme Court swatted that down, too. Can't ask a question about are you in the country legally on the survey. Why is that? Why are Democrats so terrified of that? They say, oh, it's going to scare illegals. No, they don't want people to know how many legals are actually in the country. Obviously. And the poll that that has, if you are illegal, let's say, and you have a family member who is legal. Who is that family member who was born in this country and therefore has been granted citizenship? And there is the whole anchor baby thing that Trump has talked about. and He has taken no action on that whatsoever. I'm a, I'm a little bit I'm a little bit frustrated with Trump this week. I'm not I folks. I tell you the truth. I tell you the truth. Um, but the anchor baby situation has not been addressed by Trump. Immigration has not been meaningfully addressed by Trump or the Republicans in Congress. And now we get to the one thing that has been done here. The one. Oh, what I was saying before is just that there's a political pull to the left and the Democrats that occurs through legal immigration, even if illegals can't vote, which legally they can't do some of them through fraud. You know, we don't have the data, but it seems likely given the given the motor voter registration where you just go to the DMV, you can get a license even if you're illegal. But. Uh, they register people anyway. So the one thing Trump did, the one thing that the president did on immigration was rescind Obama's executive order on DACA. And this is very straightforward. Obama says, I'm going to use my prosecutorial authority in a sense, you know, my executive discretion to grant these rights to these individuals because I can't, through fiat, grant them citizenship. Only Congress can do that. But I'm going to give them these rights under a, a, a look, a flatly unconstitutional reading of what the president can do in the first place. So Obama takes an unconstitutional action to grant special rights under a, executive Order In this case, it's really a form of like a prosecutorial discretion. Don't worry. We're, we promise we're not going to prosecute you. And we promise we'll let you work if you come tell the federal government the following things. You know, if you come and register under the program, that was the, the bargain that was made. Trump comes along and says, OK, well, that was that president. He did something unconstitutional. Obama did something lawless with DACA. I'm now the president. Speaking from Trump's perspective, sorry, I haven't run and won the election yet, guys, but I'm working on it. Uh, I am not I, I am not bound by what my predecessor did here. That was merely an exercise of discretion. So I must therefore have the discretion to undo what my predecessor chose to do. Right. If he can make the decision, yes, I can make the decision. No, it's like if if, if one president vetoes a piece of legislation and then the next president, with the same legislation put in front of him, signs it. That's the president's right. That's the president's prerogative. There's no different. No different. This could not be 
a more straightforward exercise of president, uh, presidential authority, presidential power. And yet, in a 5-4 decision, John Roberts selling out the Constitution again. I mean, I made a joke today on Twitter. The Federalist Society is going to have to learn to code because, man, they gave us some really crappy judges. And I don't want to tell you some of the people who were enormous, not just proponents of, but were, were pointed to as the luminaries of the conservative legal movement. They're people that some of you like who are saying, this judge I know will be fantastic. Trust me, guys, this is the judge you want with Roberts. <laughs> that was, uh, Roberts is a disaster. He's a disaster because he's, he's, it's almost like having a, a never-Trumper on the Supreme Court, right? Someone whose only job is to pretend to be one thing while always helping the other side. Congrats, Justice Roberts. Constantly doing violence to the Constitution and undoing the very legal order that is supposed to be you know, his life's work to protect. But they came along, and who wants to guess what they claim is the reason for preventing the president from using his discretion to undo this deferred action for illegals? Ah, it is the Administrative Procedures Act. They are claiming that it is capricious. Uh, it, is, it is capricious for the president to do this that it is not within his power merely because they don't think he has justified it well enough. Now, I want to know, arbitrary and capricious is the term of art that's used. I want to note this for all of you. Under this standard of arbitrary and capricious, the Supreme Court could overturn anything that the president does, right? Can Can the president deploy U.S. military to deal with a, a crisis somewhere, you know, in, in, under the authorities that he has as commander in chief. Oh, I, I don't know. It's kind of arbitrary and capricious. What, what, what is the president? Can the president, you know, through executive order, rename a post office? Oh, no, he can't call that post office, you know, whatever he wants, because that's arbitrary and capricious. The the libs here have asserted a legal standard. That they can always use to undo anything Because you know what is really arbitrary and capricious? Calling things you don't like arbitrary and capricious, folks. That's right. Mm, Yeah, I know you're allowed to decide what we're having for dinner tonight. You know, you know, it's it's hamburgers or hot dogs. But I and I know you have that right. But your choice of hamburger is just a little too capricious for me. I I don't feel like you have enough enough of a justification. So I'm not going to let you make the choice for dinner. Do you still have the? Are you still making the choice about dinner then, or has that been taken from you? How do you overcome the standard that's arbitrary and capricious? You don't. You don't. There's no point in even getting into the details. It doesn't matter. The president has the right to do this. For any reason or no reason, he can choose to undo this executive order beforehand. That's his power. The Supreme Court doesn't have that power, but they've taken it upon themselves now. This conservative, allegedly, leaning Supreme Court has given us some of the worst judicial travesties of my lifetime in just the last week so for all those people who are claiming oh that's right we're gonna don't worry you know we're gonna get the judges in there and that's gonna make everything better no it's not no it's not there there is no get out of jail free card for the right here there is, there is no final bastion of defense of sanity of constitutionalism If you can't win, 
Today is really a reminder for all of us, and in a sense, it's just adding to the rallying cry that I'm trying to get going with all of you, that we need to win. We need to mobilize, and we need to push for what we believe. Just getting judges is not going to cut it. You're in the Freedom Hut. This is the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Joy, you were, I'm told, in shock. (laughs) I was. I was shocked. And I say, bravo, Neil Gorsuch. And uh, there's hope for America. You know, I I feel much better today about the whole situation. But, you know, what a disappointment this must be for the Trump base. I mean, they overlooked Stormy Daniels. They overlooked um, the grabbing by the genitals remarks. They overlooked uh, uh, making fun of the handicapped. They overlooked overlooked uh, locking children up, uh, taking them away from their parents, all for the Supreme Court. And now this is the thanks they get. I'm sure they are not happy today. And may I just say one more thing? Alito and Kavanaugh, particularly Judge Thomas, should hang his head in shame. There you go. Noted legal scholar Joy Behar. Unfortunately, there's some truth to what she says about Gorsuch getting a big high five from the left. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I'm sure they, they, they're going to be really nice to him for about a week. Good job, Neil. Well done. Um, but if you weren't worried enough about the Constitution, and the future of liberty in this country, Joy Behar is thinking that things are going great. She is very pleased with these. Re- I'm sure she loves the DACA decision today, too. Note, noted legal and jurisprudence scholar, Madame Behar. Uh, she thinks this is great. All the leftists think this is great. Uh, they, they, my friends, the left is ascendant. We can either admit this or not, but we are not, we are not winning right now. Do we want to win? I am not tired of winning because we have not been winning. So let's turn this thing around, folks. Let's all do our part. Thanks for listening to the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. As I have been saying, it is a bad week for justice, for the rule of law, for the Constitution, and with all of that, for the country. I, I cannot sugarcoat it. I'm not, I'm not here to pretend things are good. You know this. When things were good, I was telling you. And, oh, I could drive up ratings and, oh, I know the whole thing, you know. It's terrible what's happening. I mean, I, I can do that, too. But it's much better to just speak honestly to the people that you love and respect that comprise your listeners, your team, your audience. And I've always done that. Uh, you can go back and play the tape. Six months ago, eight months ago, I was saying, guys, things are great. We're winning. Comedy's great. Enjoy it. We still have fights. We're still in the game. But, you know, let's, you know, take, take a nice long, take a nice long uh, victory lap with yourself this weekend because we're going to be back. We're going to be back in the trenches before you know it. Now we're in the trenches and we're taking incoming. Okay. We're, we're no longer in the happy times. Politically speaking, uh, we, we have really been hit with a bit of a blitzkrieg recently. This has been bad. And now we have the, these lawless decisions. I mean, the decision, the LBGTQ decision that came down uh, will effectively destroy religious liberty and free speech over time. I mean, those things will no longer exist in this country. You're going to have to bend that knee, bake that cake, and beg for forgiveness if you uh, so much as raise any hint of, hey, you know, is is transgenderism among the youth 
based on the studies that have been done, it's contagious in that people who become transgender at a very young age, other people around them become transgender as well in a way that statistically is not possible unless you assume that there are people who see this and see the attention from it who are very young and very impressionable and therefore adopt similar positions. Um, This is what the peer-reviewed science, until it gets pulled, which it has been, says about that. If you even bring that up now or going forward, you are going to be told you're a bad person, you're a bigot, and let's uh, let's make sure that we have surgeries to remove um, healthy breast tissue and fully functional uh, male genitalia. That, that that's anyone who questions that is the equivalent of a KKK member. That's coming your way. Cutting off healthy genitals because of a psychological condition, which is what remember this is not based in genetics. This is not based in biology. This is, we're told, this is an emotional state. Uh, the, the federal government has now taken the position that this is a, a protected class, and if you don't adhere to all aspects of that protected class's ideology, you will be sued. You will be in trouble. That's, that's now where, just wait, you'll see. I've been saying it. I've been telling you all this is coming. The insanity and rapacious authoritarianism of the left has actually been accelerating. It's been getting worse in recent years, in recent decades, Trump pushed back some of it. But now it feels like there's been even a backlash to Trump that we are suffering through. And I'm not going to tell you that I think the president has been an effective warrior for his own cause in recent weeks because he has not. He has not been. And I do not know what's going on, although I do understand that there are some advisors around him who are just they don't understand or they do understand that they're worried about what happens to them after a Trump presidency. What kind of board seats, what kind of, uh, what kind of reputations will they carry with them into the elite circles that they will want to be accepted in? This is certainly the case with uh, Justice Roberts. I mean, Justice Roberts wants to make sure that his kids get to go to Harvard and then Yale Law, and their kids' kids and kids will get to go to Harvard and Yale Law. And Roberts is doing enough for the left that that will happen. He, he will be able to point to see what I have, see what Roberts hath given to the left. Not enough that they love him, but enough that they will take care of him enough that he will be allowed. You watch and see his kids will all I mean, I don't know where they are. I don't know how many kids he has, but, you know, his name and his family going forward will always be among the elite. Always be among the elite. Um, but so we, th- these things are going against us right now, and this is very concerning. Then you also have this lawlessness via the Democrat Party, and we should always maintain the truth here, and that is the Democrat Party is behind. It it is the Democrats rioting, the Democrats looting. These are Democrats doing all of these things. And if Republicans did any of this, it is all you would hear about, not for the days it happens, for weeks and months going forward. So... Now that brings me to this Rayshard Brooks case. I've given you my analysis based on the video, and I've told you what I think about what's happening here. Uh, I watched this press conference live yesterday as it happened, as the district, the district attorney um, was sounding 
like he was the attorney for the family of Rayshard Brooks. I mean, he did not sound like a D.A. He sounded like somebody. This is Paul Howard, who is the D.A. in this case. He sounded like someone who had been hired uh, to be the lawyer for the Brooks Brooks family, the Brooks estate. That's that's how completely out of line it was. Uh, He referred to Mr. Brooks and we have substantial video and all the angles. There's many different cameras. The body cameras are on. There's over 40 minutes of video. He referred to Mr. Brooks as cooperative. He referred to Mr. Brooks as jovial, which I thought was a particularly interesting word to use, and cited how in the 40 minutes or so up to the scuffle, but didn't even frame it this way, but in those 40 minutes, you know, he was doing what he thought needed to be done. He was being reasonable and friendly with the cops and nothing really bad, presented, presented no threat. That's, that's the verbiage that was used here. That's what we were told about this. And a lot of us sat there. I, I myself was sitting there as Paul Howard was making what was, what was effectively uh, a case built on misrepresent, uh, misrepresentations and falsehoods and then said that it was going to be 11 counts against Officer Rolf, including a felony murder count for which the officer could receive the death penalty. That's right. This cop in Atlanta was serving his community, showed no animus whatsoever to the uh, the suspect. He was a suspect in a DUI case. He was also out on parole for felony uh, domestic abuse, including abuse of a child. I'm sure now you're going to see a lot of T-shirts with his face on them, though. He's a hero. Yes, he wrestled cops to the ground. Yes, he stole their taser. On what did the, the district attorney, Paul Howard, what did he say? Oh, he's up for re-election soon, isn't he? And he's somebody who's clearly a Democrat. What did he say was the truth of tasers as recently as two weeks ago? Play clip one, please and charged with aggravated assault of uh, Ms. Pilgrim, and this is for pointing a taser at Mrs. Uh, Pilgrim. And uh, as many of you all know, under Georgia law, a taser is considered as a deadly weapon under Georgia law. A taser is considered a deadly weapon under Georgia law. Now, that's, that's fascinating to me. That's fascinating to me because we were told very clearly, we were told without any, any uh, hesitation that there was no threat. In fact, here was the district attorney in the press conference yesterday. Uh, but uh, Mr. Brooks never displayed any aggressive behavior, behavior during the 70, 41 minutes and 17 seconds. Now, this is a um, another important. Never displayed aggressive behavior, except when he wrestled two cops to the ground, took a weapon, which that D.A. said two weeks ago is a lethal weapon under Georgia law. And guess what? It is. And then used it on the officers as he was 
running from them. Why would you just say that say that he never displayed aggressive tendencies? Why would that even matter if he had displayed some aggressive tendencies leading up to the incident? The actual fighting, the wrestling on the ground, which Bro Cuomo said showed bad technique. Yeah, a real tough guy. It's easy to be getting paid millions to sit in a fancy CNN studio, read words that other people write for you, uh, and, and then talk about how you're like a real tough guy that would know exactly how to wrestle an assailant to the ground at night, in the dark, on the street, where, you know, you don't know what's going on. But I digress. The DA even went further than that, described, described Brooks as cooperative throughout. At the very beginning, he was peacefully sleeping in his car. Uh, after he was awakened by the officer, he was cooperative, and the, he was directed to move his car to another location. He calmly moved his car. Uh, Mr. Brooks was asked whether or not he had a weapon. Uh, he indicated that he did not. Uh, without any resistance, he passed his driver's license to the officers. And the officers then asked Mr. Brooks whether or not he would consent to a pat down or a, a body search. And uh, Mr. Brooks allowed them to search him and the search yielded no weapon. So I guess there was no problem, right? I mean, the way this guy's talking about it, the way this D.A. Paul Howard's describing the exchange, uh, Mr. Brooks here, the deceased, was completely doing everything that he was supposed to do. No problem, no threat. Peacefully sleeping in his car. That was the quote. That's what the DA says in Atlanta about a man who had driven so drunk to a drive through that he fell asleep in active traffic while out on parole for other crimes. Did you get any of that sense from this? Did you get any, any inclination that... There was perhaps some problem that Rayshard Brooks was posing. No, no, he was fine. He was great. He's a model citizen up until the big, bad, mean. Oh, and then they implied racist cop shot him, said that afterwards, after he was shot, they stood on, you know, they stood on his shoulder or his arm for a second. Uh, he has a, he had a taser in his hands. They just had a violent exchange. People's adrenaline is, is absolutely firing. And that sounds bad, right? You say, oh, well, why would he kick him afterwards? Maybe he was nudging him with his foot, kicking him with his foot, call whatever you want, to see if, you know, he was still, you don't know if you've hit this guy really yet. You don't know where he's been hit. So easy to be the, you know, the the perfect Monday morning quarterback on this, especially with the political pressures, which we all know right now. I mean, this cop, this cop is being fed to the mob. And they might try to put a bag over his head and a lethal injection in his arm for serving his community. That's right. That's what they're going to do this cop. It's appalling. It's disgusting what they're doing. And if you're not, I mean, just the way they even broke down. Well, let me, let me come back and tell you a little bit about some of the charges that they threw at the cops here, including the felony murder charge, which could send him to a lethal injection. You're in the Freedom Hut. This is the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Eleven criminal charges against Officer Rolf, the other officer, Brosnan, who's involved in this. 
has turned state's evidence, which is not surprising because he probably doesn't want to spend the rest of his life in prison to placate the mob. So while I'd like to think that he would stand up for his partner here, you know, you know, look, you know, they, they bring this kind of pressure against you. It's very difficult to be the one that, you know, you're asking. A lot of people won't stand on principle when their entire future, their entire life hangs in the balance. We can't even get people to stand on principle if, you know, it means they might lose a few stations and, you know, not make 10 million this year, maybe only five. Uh, but here here is one of the examples of what the D.A. thinks is a, is a big problem. And one of the charges they hit them with numerous. They hit Officer Rolf with numerous professional misconduct charges like this. And that he was under arrest for driving under the influence. And uh, this is a requirement of the Atlanta Police Department. When one is charged with DUI, uh, the Atlanta Police Department's own procedures require that that person is informed immediately that they are under arrest. And then he was grabbed from the rear uh, by uh, Officer Roth who made an attempt to physically restrain him after the 41-minute and 17-second discussion. We concluded and considered it as uh, one of our important considerations that Mr. Brooks never presented himself as a threat. Never presented himself as a threat. I'm just going to go out on a limb here. Despite what the DA here, Paul Howard, is saying, If I were a cop and someone, when I tried to very calmly and professionally handcuff them to place them under arrest, Brooks has been arrested before, folks. He knows the drill. You know, he says he didn't tell him he was being placed under arrest. The second he grabbed his hands to put him under arrest, he was about to say, I'm sure, sir, you're under arrest. Then Brooks started fighting right away. I mean, you know, you're you're talking about a one or two second delay. They're charging him under professional misconduct for that. They're charging, they're charging uh, Officer Rolf with destruction of property because one of the bullets that he fired at Brooks hit a car. So the 11 counts here, they went through this exchange and gave, gave Rolf not a single benefit of the doubt, not a single, you know, uh, nothing. Everything that they could conceivably charge. I'm a little surprised they didn't charge they didn't charge Officer Rolf with violating the Administrative Procedures Act. Uh, that that's the only thing I can think of that they left out here. And you know, they got to get him on that one too. Yesterday was when when watching the justice system work. I mean, yesterday was one of the ugliest moments I can remember in in my life. Uh, in terms of a, a injustice happening right before you. I mean, it reminded me of Kavanaugh and how they went after him and being feeling helpless to do anything about it. You know, it, it reminded me of Mueller and his team charging General Flynn. It reminded me of the O.J. verdict. Thanks for listening to the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. What's really going on then with these charges, the 11 charges against Officer Rolf? Why is this happening? It seems like it's so clear that this is an overcharge at a minimum. I would argue that any decent defense attorney would be able to make an incredibly strong case uh, against 
these charges and there is a clear animus from the D.A. against this officer to just give him the count of countless counts, as we say. Right. Just throw everything you can find. Oh, he also, you know, he used a swear word and that's a violation of the regulations on the job. Let's throw that in there, too. I mean, whatever it is. But there was a very important moment in the D.A.'s press conference where he said that after after um, Officer Rolf had shot his weapon and hit Rayshard Brooks, he did not seem to have any good feelings toward him. I'm, I'm paraphrasing here, but it was, you know, there seemed to be other feelings, not subtle at all. I mean, not so. Oh, okay. So the officer, the two white officers who were entirely respectful and professional for 40 minutes, who then all of a sudden had to wrestle this guy because he was resisting arrest and attacking them. You know, resisting arrest is one thing. Going for a cop's gun or going for a cop's taser is another. That's an elevation. And that's not I'm trying to get away alone that's i'm gonna get away and if i have to hurt you if i have to kill you to get away i'm gonna do it rayshard brooks was out on parole this would have been a a dui which he was clearly guilty of they gave him a breathalyzer the guy was driving drunk i thought that was a crime by the way is that still a crime or does that fall under the you know the all lives matter idea that we just want to stop people from driving their car into another car and killing an innocent human being or into another person on the street, you know, is that not DUI right now? Not really something we're going to enforce? I just want to know. Because I thought it was a reckless thing, and we all could agree that with the thousands and thousands of people killed by drunk drivers every year, that we all want that law to be enforced. Are we not sure about that right now? Oh, no, because all laws are up in question. Any law that the left doesn't find politically useful in the moment can be dispensed with at a moment's notice. So the the, so the district attorney, the district attorney takes the position in all of this that there was a racial animus. I mean, he didn't say that, but that seems to be the implication. I mean, it wasn't subtle. There were other thoughts going on here. You know what the district attorney did not, what Paul Howard did not add into his presentation where he was making the justification and with slides and everything for why he thinks that this officer should face possibly being uh, being murdered by the state. And this would be murdered by the state because there is no way that this was just uh, I mean, in a normal universe, maybe, maybe you'd be able to make a charge of excessive force and involuntary manslaughter. I mean that. And I think that that would be overcharged. I think that's wrong. I think that they used force based upon a perceived and real threat to their safety and their law enforcement officers. And that's and I stand behind every single word of that. Nothing has changed. But I'll tell you this, a very important part of the district attorney's presentation that somehow got or rather a very important part of the events that was left out of the DA's presentation here. Was that Officer Rolf after after discharging his weapon and after standing on him and kicking him and we're told that that was brought into the into the press conference which is really a Paul Howard reelection campaign ad. Let's understand that, too, for this D.A. who is elected by popular vote. Um, He left out that uh, Rolf performed uh, emergency CPR and was holding the uh, holding the suspect because he was a suspect and saying, stay with me, Mr. Brooks, stay with me, stay with me, Mr. Brooks. And they call the rescue ambulance. Now, for two minutes, they say they did not 
give him life-saving, uh, they, they did not give him enough you know, life-saving um, attention. Uh, after you've discharged your weapon and your adrenaline is flowing like that, some of you have probably seen the movie Sully. And you remember how they were going to, they were going to, for political reasons, very different kind of case, wasn't a racial issue, but for very different reasons, they were going to, Captain Sullenberger, remember they were going to, the miracle on the Hudson, but they wanted to, they wanted to get him, right? You know, why'd you do that? Why'd you land the plane in the water that way? You could have taken it back to the airport, right? This, this is the, the story that's told in the movie. Um, I'm sure there's some dramatic license to it, but that was what was, that was what was that issue. And he said, okay, fine, you can run a simulation, but that's a simulation by a robot. When a human being finds out that they've had two goose strikes or whatever, two geese have hit the, uh, hit the engines, and now they have effectively no power, no thrust whatsoever on the plane, any human being is going to have about 30 or 40 seconds, as, as you remember from the movie, where they're just, th- their adrenaline is flowing, they're going to pause. They're going to you're not a machine. This is not expected. You're not ready for this. You know, was two minutes a little long? I'm not in those cop shoes, but. Is a minute long? No. Forty five. You, you just fired your gun for 45 seconds. You're going to assess the situation. Is he still a threat? Oh, my gosh. How badly hit is he? What do I do? What just happened? There's going to be a lot of things happening in your head. There's a reason why after police use their weapon, they have to see a psychologist, they have to or a psychiatrist, they have to have their procedures in place to deal with the trauma of using your weapon in a situation like this. It is a traumatic experience. I don't know people on the left would probably ridicule this, but they're cowards who don't understand what the real world is actually like. Um, why weren't we told that Officer Rolf, who, who it was implied was a racist or, or had some racial animus? Wasn't said, but it was implied by the D.A. D.A. is African-American. He was surrounded by numerous uh, other African-American uh, employees of the state of Georgia. The optics for his career getting reelected seem quite clear as it pertains to why he would bring the harshest charges imaginable against this white officer, right? I mean, he, he was, this was a destroy the cop press conference. That's what this was. Just, just annihilate this guy. I haven't even had a trial yet, but annihilate this guy. Um, because otherwise you can't explain to me why it would be left off that this officer who we're being told was a racist um, was performing CPR and and pleading, pleading with Brooks to keep breathing and stay alive. Does anybody think if we're really going to take the left and the BLM movement and the cowards in the lib media and all the people who are so terrified of this all the time of actually looking at what's going on here and what's happening to our country, which right now is being pulled apart on purpose by reckless Vandals. I don't just mean the ones that are destroying stores and looting. I mean those who are kicking at the load-bearing walls of this country, who are swinging sledgehammers at the pillars of our society and laughing and claiming self-righteousness while they do it. What's really going on here? We are to believe that these two officers who were called to a legitimate, uh, a legitimate circumstance for police involvement, who are completely respectful and, and calm and measured in every single step of a 40-minute long conversation 
But then when they were presented with resistance and a threat, it was a threat to say otherwise is, is preposterous from this man. Um, it was racial animus that caused them to act as they did. All of a sudden they became racist or all of a sudden their racism was activated here. Instead of this individual, Rayshard Brooks, attacked two cops and then was shot in the ensuing fight that happened. That's that is the if you just want to just break this thing all down to its essence, to its foundation. We are being told that this was another instance of systematic white racism in the police force against a uh, black American. That's that is what is behind all of this. That's why this is happening. That's why he's facing a murder, a felony murder charge that could give him the death of murder one. I mean, are you kidding me? Death penalty. It's also why law enforcement recognizes that they're going to have to they're going to have to get into the fight over this, too. This isn't just an Atlanta thing. This is across the whole country because these officers were not racist. These officers are not murderers. They're not KKK members. They're not all these awful things that are going to be said. And I know the one officer has turned state's evidence because he's trying to save his life. Um, but Officer Rolf was doing the best that he could under difficult circumstances, and it is not his fault that this situation escalated. The level of force that was used here was in response to escalations made by somebody who was a drunk, convicted felon out on parole who did not want to get arrested again. That's where this is. And it's a tragedy, and the guy shouldn't have died. No one wanted him to die. It's a bad thing that we're all sad about. I mean, I, I, I do not want anyone being shot on the streets by cops. I mean, but if you're going to be a threat to police, they are allowed to defend themselves. But instead, what we're told is that this is proving the point of BLM once again. And there will probably be more riots. There'll probably be more rage in the streets based in what I think is is the uh, dishonest version of what happened here. That's, that's not what happened. Uh, this was not racist, systematic racist murdering uh, cop situation. And law enforcement in Atlanta there, they're, at least last night, I was seeing all these reports. They were walking off the job. Atlanta cops calling in sick, saying, sorry, uh, deciding that uh, they're not going to do it. They're protesting the charges against him. Atlanta Police Department morale is down tenfold. Uh, that's the headline on CBS News. Uh, we're, we're hearing a lot about this. Atlanta police call out sick after murder charge. Look, uh, how am I supposed to tell our, our brothers and sisters in law enforcement Remember, the law enforcement community in Atlanta, it's over over 50 percent black officers on the Atlanta PD in the Atlanta Police Department. So when they're trashing law enforcement officers, I mean, a lot of the officers are, are black. And, and I'm I'm sitting here trying to defend all the officers, the black officers, the white officers, all of them for doing a very important job and doing it well and being part of that front line against viciousness and anarchy and destruction that comes from the criminal element. But they're calling in sick. I think you're going to see more of this. People are going to say they've had enough. Mayor Keisha Lance Bottoms has said they have a, they had enough enough officers last night because they could cover this. And the Atlanta Police Department saying that multiple officers, the suggestions that multiple officers from each zone had walked off the job were inaccurate 
the department is experiencing a higher than usual number of call outs with the incoming shift. Yeah. Atlanta PD. What do you think that is? You think that's a coincidence? Preposterous. Um, You're also seeing that there are other state agencies, law enforcement agencies that are claiming that unless there's an officer in distress call. They're not going to be helping. This is this. This is the society. This is the country that the left is trying to make right now as we're in an election year and there will be control of the federal government, at least at stake this fall. This is what they want. This is the country they're trying to create, one in which cops cannot do their jobs, do not want to show up for work anymore and know that the politics have been weaponized against them all in the mad grasping power interests of the left. That's what this is about. It was disgusting. It was honestly upsetting yesterday to watch it. I, I'm going to keep following the story, and I hope that we have some justice to speak of coming forward. But what happened at that press conference was a travesty, an absolute travesty. You're in the Freedom Hut. This is the Buck Sexton Show podcast. The United States didn't inherit slavery from anybody. We created it. It got created by the Virginia General Assembly and the legislatures of other states. It got created by the court systems in colonial America and sense that enforced fugitive slave laws. It was we created it and we created it and maintained it over centuries. And in in my lifetime, we have finally stopped some of those practices, but we've never gone back to undo it. Stopping racist practices at year 350 of 400 years, but then taking no effort to dismantle them is not the same as truly combating racism. This is the kind of either historical inaccuracy or really perhaps you could say historically misleading stuff that so very clearly, um, uh, so very clearly describes so much of the left's view of these things now. To say that we did not inherit slavery, it seems to suggest, and to say that we, we created slavery in America is historical ignorance, the likes of which it's stunning that Tim Kaine could, could utter on the floor of Congress and not think that he's a total moron. Slavery, as anybody who has ever read the Bible knows, has existed for really as long as human history has existed. Uh, slavery is something that existed in many European countries Uh, Well up into the early 19th century, uh, the if you want to read of the most horrific exploitation of slaves and slavery, perhaps of the entire colonial period, it would uh, it would it would be a case that you could make, certainly in the European context, that it was. The Belgians and the Belgian Congo, I mean, there's the the depravity and the the and who would you know, the Belgians don't all walk around all the time apologizing for their legacy or their history of, of slavery. Uh, but what they did in the Belgian Congo is just is. Is as horrific beyond words and it really was a genocide. And uh, yet there's there's no historical context given for statements like this that Tim Kaine makes. That we, we created slavery um, almost like Americans are uniquely guilty, historically speaking, right? Slavery has been gone for 150 years now. But historically speaking, we are uniquely uh, guilty of that institution. And it's just not true. It's just not true. 
there was there has been slavery practiced in societies all over the world. In fact, there was a very interesting fact check done of the kente cloth scar, uh, kente cloth shawl scarf, whatever you want to call it, uh, that Pelosi and all the different members of Congress have been wearing in a show of just absurd pandering, of course. Um, but uh, you know, like Nancy Nancy Pelosi feels a real kinship to this kingdom in in Ghana, uh, historical kingdom in Ghana. But it turns out that the the dynasty most associated with kente cloth was involved in the African slave trade by enslaving Africans and selling them to Europeans. The Time magazine did this fact check. I'm, I'm just telling you, I think it was Time magazine, but this fact check is out there. So, you know, there there was slavery practice in Africa at the same time that Euro, the European slave trade was exploiting the existence of a slave trade in Africa, where some kingdoms and some uh, tribes were enslaving others. I've told you extensively on this show about the Muslim African slave trade of white Christians that went into the millions. Again, in the 1600s, into the 1700s, stretching back even into the, the 1500s. This has been around, and now this is not, it's horrible. It's like saying, you know, genocide is bad. It's like saying, you know, uh, racism is bad. I mean, these are, these are universal truths. Slavery is bad. Of course, it is evil. Slavery is bad and evil. Genocide is bad and evil. Abortion is bad and evil. But our society will come to terms with that one another day. But can we at least have some historical context for statements like this by Tim Kaine? No, of course not. Better to better to seem woke for the senator. Thanks for listening to the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. All right, back by popular demand. The one and only Dinesh D'Souza is with us. He has a new documentary coming out, The Trump Card, and he also has a new book out that you should be buying, you should be reading, The United States of Socialism. Mr. Dinesh D'Souza, great to have you. Hey, it's always terrific. Glad to be on the show. So let, let's start with the, the documentary, and then I want to drill into some of what's going on in the country right now. What should we what are we going to see in the Trump card doc that you've got coming out? Um, well, I, it's I think it's going to be my best film yet. This is number five, my my fifth documentary. It's uh, couldn't be more timely. And um, it embraces all the craziness that's going on here, but it also lays out what's at stake. It, it's a deeper dive than you normally get in the media about what what does socialism mean? Uh, where is it coming from? What's driving it? Not just in politics, but also the larger cultural forces. Remember, we're dealing with people who sometimes care more about abortion than the minimum wage, more about the transgender bathroom than they care about universal basic income. So there's a cultural Marxism element here. Uh, and then there's Trump, this very kind of unusual figure who is who is de facto the leader the political leader of the fight against socialism so the movie kind of dives into all that it's going to leave you um knowing a lot more but also fired up and with a with a kind of concrete battle plan for taking on these guys who are certainly out of control dinesh you know we use the term uh, cultural marxism i've said it before on this show but i you know you have written about this for many years been studying this for for decades 
just for, for everyone out there, you know, I, I think we, we all this is one of those concepts. We all have a sense of it. But what 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 is your definition? Or how, how should we be thinking of cultural Marxism? Because, you know, often leftists will say, well, car, you know, Marxism is about the, the controlling the means of production, the distribution. What's cultural Marxism? Right. And they try to get uh, into the semantics of this. What should people be thinking of as cultural Marxism and how it's affecting us today? In the 1920s, the uh, Italian communist uh, Gramsci uh, made a, a very interesting observation. He said, look, we uh, Marxists are never going to win uh, as long as we are just trying to convert the working class. He goes, why is this? Because he said the working class, even though they may be oppressed under capitalism, they are part of a larger bourgeois culture. This is a culture that is nourished by Judaism and Christianity. This is a culture that is imbued with them, uh, a, a story of history, a sense of values. And so you cannot look at them as economic animals alone. These working class people have also assimilated bourgeois culture. And as long as that's the case, they will never have a revolution. So according to Gramsci, we have to take over the universities, we meaning the left. Well, we have to take over the organs and institutions of culture. We need, you may say, counter indoctrination. And so the left has taken up this project with a vengeance, starting in the 1960s, but continuing to now. And they have, in fact, I think, successfully seized most of academia, uh, most of the mainstream media, virtually all of Hollywood, seemingly now digital media. And so they are conducting, you may almost call it, cultural military operations against us. You should understand a lot of this mayhem in the streets, the pulling down of monuments, by the way, not just Confederate monuments, but Lincoln's monument. Uh, this is part of of their cultural assault on what they called bourgeois or Judeo-Christian values. Cultural Marxism is the non-economic component of the left's culture war. We're speaking to Dinesh D'Souza, author of many books, including his latest that is just out now, United States of Socialism. And he's got a documentary coming up as well, The Trump Card. Dinesh, I've got to say, I'm not, uh, and I don't mean this personally, I mean the conservative movement, not feeling tired of winning these days with these Supreme Court decisions that have come down. It feels like the conservative legal project is really in in question. Uh, it feels like with the assault on the statues and on our cities and the looting and the rioting, there has not been the counterpunch, the counter narrative that we would want to see. What do you see going on? And I know you've got this in the in the Trump card. How do we turn this around? Because I feel like and I've said this publicly for a couple of weeks now, it feels like right now the Trump movement is losing or at least losing ground. Well, the left has uh, is very good at seizing its opportunities and uh, interesting to see how they um, have used the George um, Floyd uh, killing. Um, every conservative that I know um, was uh, publicly outraged uh, immediately upon seeing the video. So there was an opportunity for racial healing, uh, for racial unity. We all agree on this, uh, that there should not be uh, bad cops uh, and there should only be good cops. Uh, but the left realized that they don't want that. They need division because that is part of their strategy. The whole notion of identity socialism, as I call it, is to set rich against poor, black against white, male against female, straight against gay, legal against illegal, and then try to create a majority coalition of oppressed victim groups. And so the left said, look, let's take this George Floyd killing and stick on top of it a larger narrative, a very controversial narrative. The problem, as they see it, is not just bad cops, it's all cops. Cops are racist. 
the country is racist. Capitalism is imbued with white supremacy. It's been that way since at least 1776, if not before. And the left said, let's force feed people this narrative. And if they dispute the narrative, let's accuse them of being bigots because they don't care about George Floyd. Now, I would say that our side does, is always caught in, in, with sort of deer-like surprise when this happens. I mean, they do it all the time, but we never seem to know how to respond. And we respond to their narrative with what can be called data. Like, wait a minute, uh, it is factually true that more whites, you know, but the problem is uh, a narrative isn't data. A narrative is a storyline, uh, an interpretation of a wide set of facts, and it can only be overthrown with a counter narrative that is also a story of American history and the place of racism in it. We don't generate that narrative. Uh, Trump doesn't do it. Republicans don't do it. Conservative intellectual magazines don't do it. Uh, and it desperately needs to be done. What would that narrative Dinesh sound like at this point in time? I mean, how, how can we address these issues? I mean, they're they're not just, as you know, attacking statues of Confederate generals. They're beheading Christopher Columbus statues. There was a, a shooting at a statue where there was an Antifa group there and, and a militia group over Juan de Oñate, which I think is a, that's a figure that less than one percent of Americans without resorting to Google would even know who this guy is. And they're going after all kinds of statues, Churchill statues defaced in London, in the UK. So what does the narrative that addresses this what feels like mass psychosis? And that's one way that I've described it on the left. It feels like a mass delusion how do we start to, other than just calling them all crazy, which I think is an important maybe first step, what do we say next? Let's focus on the, on the Lincoln statue, because I think that is, in a way, the most revealing of all. Uh, every time we talk, I talk about Lincoln, the left, there are always some leftist historians who tell me Lincoln was really a progressive, you know, um, if he lived today, he would have been a Democrat and so on. But they don't really believe this. This is just sort of their public stance. In private, they hate him. They hate Lincoln. Now, why is that? It may seem strange. Uh, they hate the man who freed the slaves. Uh, by the way, Lincoln's rival, Stephen Douglas, there is a huge monument to Stephen Douglas in Chicago standing right now. Uh, it has no guards because it doesn't need any guards. Why? Because no one is going after it. Stephen Douglas was a champion of slavery. Mm -hmm. uh, he made slavery the centerpiece of the Democratic Party platform. So we have a mystery here. The left hates Lincoln, uh, who freed the slaves more than they hate Douglas, who protected slavery. Now, why is that? Uh, the reason is really simple. Uh, Lincoln defined slavery as you work and I eat. So for him, slavery was a form of economic confiscation, a form of theft. But Lincoln said, this isn't just slavery. This is the motto and operating principle of the Democratic Party. This is who they are. They're thieves. And fast forward 150 years, and even though people produce a lot of nonsense about the party swapping sides, let me ask you this. Isn't it true now that the central principle of the Democratic Party is economic confiscation? You work, I eat. One guy produces the labor, another guy gets free college or free health care out of it. So the Democratic Party is exactly the same in its core principle as it was in Lincoln's day. And they know that. The left realizes it. So Lincoln is their real enemy. They don't have any objection in principle to enslavement. They don't have any objection in principle to, to lynching. Look at what they're doing in, in Atlanta right now. They're conducting, basically, I would say, a legal lynching. It's conducted with all the trappings of, you know, he's being indicted and we'll have a 
jury of his peers. But in the meantime, they work to inflame the jury, just like a lynch mob. So the same party of lynching has now got new targets and a little bit of new strategies, but they're still the same party of lynching, and they're doing it right now. Speaking of Dinesh D'Souza, you guys have got to see the Trump card documentary that is going to be released soon, and also pick up the United States of Socialism his book. Uh, I've read many Dinesh books over the years. I recommend this one highly to you. Dinesh, uh, how are we looking for the fall right now? I know a million things can change and all the provisos apply, but I feel like we can't right the ship right now unless we're at least willing to say this is where it's heading. You know, a lot of things, a lot of course corrections can be made. Trump's about to have his first major rally. And I think that there'll be I think that Trump has really missed that. I think that he feeds off that energy and that his message feeds off the crowds that come out to hear him. Um, How are we doing now, though, and how do we get this thing moving? The reason that we uh, made the movie, I made the movie, is because uh, I think it's important for us to to make our case. Now, uh, Trump operates a little bit, uh, I would say, like the Bible. And here's what I mean. The Bible doesn't try to prove things. You know, in the beginning, God made the heavens and the earth. It is stated category categorically. Jesus is the son of God. It's, it's not argued for. No evidence is supplied. It's declared. And Trump declares things. America will never be a socialist country. Uh, but uh, unlike Reagan, when Reagan gave his evil empire speech a generation ago, if you listen to it carefully, you would learn a lot about communism, about the Soviet Union. He would quote Soviet dissidents. He, in other words, Reagan would produce a narrative. Um, Trump has great strengths, but this is something he does not do. So this is something I want to do to make um, ultimately a narrative uh, that I think will be very powerful in helping people not only understand what's going on, but know what to do about it. And as I say, what needs to be done about it, certainly long term, there are transformations of culture that we need to be producing and working on right now, building our own institutions, our own media, our own entertainment, even our own educational systems. I really don't see an alternative to this. There's no way to take back 400 universities. There's no way to take back Hollywood. We've got to ultimately create our own Hollywood. Dinesh D'Souza, everybody. United States of Socialism is the book. Trump card is the documentary. Dinesh, I don't know if social distancing will allow it in New York City, but if you guys have a premiere, let me know. I'll come check it out. Thanks so much. Absolutely. Great to be on the show. Take care. You're in the Freedom Hut. This is the Buck Sexton Show podcast. How much power does the cancel left particularly at this very sensitive moment in America, how much power do they really have? Do they have the power to just get you fired for anything and nothing? Well, there are news stories that indicate the answer to that question is yes. And uh, this uh, hat tip to Matt Walsh for raising this one to my attention over at the Daily Wire. NBC San Diego, uh, and this was under the headline... The news headline San Diego gave is Black Lives Matter. So this is under the vertical of Black Lives Matter. Here's the story. And this was just published uh, a couple of days ago. I just saw it now. There's a local news story. An SDG&E worker, this guy's a truck driver, who was fired. I think, wait, no, he's a, sorry, he's a San Diego gas and electric employee. Pardon me. But he was in a truck, driving a truck, a company truck, and... He had a stranger follow him, took a picture of him, and then the picture was shared on Twitter. 
This man, and his name is uh, Cafferty, Emmanuel Cafferty, who is half Mexican, I would uh, point out, as it says in the story. He is, a, he is half Mexican, so he is uh, somebody who would be able to c- consider himself a minority, as we know. He was followed by this person who took a photo of him, and it's, I see the photo, and his arm is just hanging outside of his truck at a red light. His hand is outside of the truck, and, I mean, if you stare at it, his thumb is touching his middle finger. He doesn't know that anyone's watching him. He's not taking a photo of himself. He is literally letting his arm rest outside of his truck in San Diego. And he was followed by this person who took this photo because the, the, the individual said about him that he was making a white power hand gesture. Now, think about the idiocy of this. He's by himself in a truck at a red light looking forward, doesn't know anything about anything going on around him, and is dangling his hand outside of a truck, doesn't even know anyone's looking at him, and he is making a white power hand signal, which we also know is the same as the OK and the circle game hand signal, but he's not even raising his hand so anyone can see this. His hand is dangling out of the side of the truck. I mean, this is crazy beyond words. And a person who was a a minority, an African-American, saw this, took a photo, put it online, and you know what happened? Cafferty, who is Mexican-American, who said he he wasn't trying to do this, had no idea. he He said he was just trying to crack his knuckles and rest his hand on the side of his truck at a red light with no one watching him. I mean, this is like getting fired for for picking your nose or like sneezing or something. This is crazy. That's right. They fired him. They fired this guy. He wants his job back. He should sue the crap out of them. The man who originally posted the picture, NBC News in San Diego, spoke to him, but they don't want to give his name. No, no. You know why? He says that he has since deleted his Twitter account and says that he might have been a little spun up over this, as in, I basically made this up because I'm an oversensitive crybaby, and says he never intended for Cafferty to lose his job, and he may have misinterpreted what Cafferty was doing. Oh, but systemic racism is everywhere! Oh my gosh! We all have to be in fear! Oh no, we have to be in fear of the people claiming that they see systemic racism everywhere because they can get you fired for doing nothing. Nothing. Please, someone listening to this in the San Diego area, reach out to Emmanuel Cafferty, get him his job back, help this guy out. You're in the Freedom Hut. This is the Buck Sexton Show podcast. So, team, I was going to tell you the story of a Washington Post piece on how someone uh, wore an offensive costume to a party I think it was two years ago, and now that person is the subject of a story, and and they've been fired two years later. Not a public person, but fired from her job uh, as a government contractor. I want to go into some detail with that story tomorrow. I also, and and this is a big story in the Washington Post. I shouldn't say big, but it's making a lot of rounds on social media. I also 
know somebody who was at the party. Uh, so I have a source who was there and I want to talk to him or her. I haven't had a chance yet, so I, I wanted to hold back on that uh, because I know somebody who was at the party in question and a big portion of the, the story, the narrative around all of this is that there is um, collective guilt on everybody who was at the party. So obviously I have to protect my source here. But if you were just at a party where someone else wore a, an offensive, it was Megyn Kelly in blackface was the Halloween costume. That was what this person did. Obviously, incredibly stupid, incredibly dumb. But I want to tell you more about that tomorrow. So I'm going to have to leave that one as a, as a teaser for tomorrow. That'll be a good Friday because I'll break down the whole thing in, in substantial detail. I mentioned at the top of the show, I didn't want to leave you hanging. So you'll have to join me on that one tomorrow. Also, I, I want to ask you, please continue to go uh, read my piece on wartime conservatism on BuckSexon.com. Because all of you shared it, read it, and, and you know, because it did as well as it, as it did now, I, I'm, I'm having Bruiser Mark is going to, you know, is going to make sure that I write every week now for this thing. At least uh, a, a column for our site for the Freedom Hut for BuckSexon.com. I'll have to write an original column every week now. Um, and that's because clearly there's there's a, a need for this and it resonated with all of you. So I'm going to now start doing that. It might not be very long. Maybe it'll only be five or six hundred words, but I'll, I'll have some something there. And if I can, I'm going to start doing it more than once a week. But that's I want to thank all of you who read it and shared it um, because you're you're voting, you're speaking by sharing. You're a part of getting that word out. And, and it was very much noted here, and the piece was very successful. So thank you for that. And I, I cannot tell you how much, you know, we, we don't grow this show because we hang on anyone's coattails and, and talk so much endlessly about our best buddy who's some big person in the business that we're hoping is going to just continue to prop us up. Uh, we do this on our own and have been growing a very successful show uh, because of all of you. And we do it the right way. We, we play this game with honor and with dignity and with decency and good content and excellent research. So we're going to continue to do that. And if you hear any noise out there from some of the others, some of the sort of older, crankier, nastier, dirty pool player types, um, I'm going to try to just avoid getting into any of that. It's, it's just not it's not worth it. Uh, because you you notice I, do, I don't do this. Do you hear do you hear me trashing fellow conservatives that are supportive of the Trump administration on this show? Do you hear me trashing them? No, you don't. Do you do you hear me calling out people by name and saying that, you know, they're they're a joke and, uh, you know, they're nasty and they're you know, no, no, no. I, I don't do that kind of stuff. Some people do. And if you're a, a, enough of an avid consumer of conservative media, you may come across some of that. But uh, here's the real problem. Um. Everywhere that this show gets placed, it is successful. Everywhere that this show gets picked up on radio, it does very well, including doing better than shows that it has replaced in markets across the country. So we just keep doing that. And I keep asking all of you to please continue to listen, continue to share the podcast. Um, and I, I will let my work speak for itself because all of you who listen to this show, especially those of you who have known it for a long time, know that that's, that's just how we roll here. That's how we do it. Um, so that's my sense on that. But we will return to this story tomorrow. Oh, yeah. And someone people there's someone out there who's who's actually gone on on a on a uh, tear and has said things about me that are just flatly untrue. And I just again, 
no need to no, untrue about my work, untrue about all kinds of it's, it's there's no need to get into it. Um, and uh, I would just note that uh, Dinesh D'Souza earlier on this show completely agreed with me and Rush Limbaugh completely agrees with me because he read my Twitter thread on his show that we need more platforms and we need more of a sense of team and some greedy established folks out there should probably just slow their roll a little bit and think about something other than their own fame, their own fortune and how how they work so hard. We all work hard in this business and in all businesses. All right. Everyone listening to the show works hard. I think it's kind of funny. It's, a, it's really a form of narcissism to describe that one is outworking everybody else. And that's the reason for success. Yeah, that and clinging for dear life onto the coattails of somebody who was already very successful. All right. Let's get to um, this Bolton situation. Now, I got to tell you. If there's so many layers that I have here for you, so many things that I, I want to say about this. First off, if Bolton is able to write a book without going through and I know about this because I was in the CIA and had a TSSEI clearance and uh, am subject. If I ever wrote a book about my time in the CIA, there is a zero percent chance that I wouldn't run it through Langley for clearance. Zero percent chance One because I know my obligation. Right. I mean, I'm talking about other things all the time and everything else. And you'll notice I don't tell a lot of stories about my time in the CIA, largely because unless I've really cleared them, I'm not comfortable doing that because I don't want to ever break my oath to protect classified. And I was just a, I was just a, a worker bee. Right. I, mean, I did some cool stuff, briefed the president a few times, you know, NBD. But I was somebody who was doing the work day to day. And I was somebody who very clearly um, was doing everything in his power to assist those who were in the more senior levels, right? And that includes people like the National Security Advisor. If the National Security Advisor can write a book without getting pre-publication clearance, nobody should have to go through this, right? If the person who is the senior most national security advisor to the president of the, and and I mean this for any president, this isn't even about Trump. This is separate from Trump, but I want to get this on the record. The whole process is a joke. And the many people who listen to this show who either have or have had clearances because they know that I bring a knowledge to this because of my background too, that they respect because they've done similar things. uh, None of us should have to submit our books for pre-publication review. Right. Rob O'Neill, who wrote the book about the bin Laden raid, uh, tweeted out in response to me yesterday. Yeah, he couldn't even say six in his book. What was he referring to with six? I don't know, I guess. Better make sure no one refers to Jay something else. I don't know what that could be. Um, This is absurd, but this is what we all go through. Bolton is writing a book that he gets a $2 million advance for, and it has not received full national security. And the, the review process is absurd. It's wrong. It's dumb. Now, there should be some review process, but I'm telling you, I mean, they if I wrote, you know, hey, I'm Buck Sexton, I worked in the CIA, and, you know, I, I was no James Bond, though. I was doing policy work or something like that. They'll probably black out James Bond. And you say, why? Well, it's a fictional character. Yeah, just trying to be careful, you know? Because there could be an international super spy running around named James Bond who wears a tuxedo for no apparent reason and is really good at driving speedboats and helicopters while smoking a cigarette. Um, 
So they're absurd with that stuff. The Bolton stories, and I'll spend more time on this tomorrow, the stories that Bolton has in this book, I'm trying to get to read the whole book. I'm planning to do that. Uh, The stories that that exist already out there, it's tough to say how much of them I think are total BS. But I'm I'm starting with what we know. If he didn't pre-clear the book before publishing it, he's in violation and should be held to account. And if he also, well, so just over that, and that he would write this book at this time with a sitting president in office, this is such an act of egregious personal disloyalty, not to Donald Trump, but to the office of the presidency. You were the gosh darn national security advisor. And you're going to go out and trade on the, the private conversations you have with the president of the United States while he's still the president and running for reelection. No honor, no integrity. And I'll tell you this, a very, very senior government official when I first started at the CIA in 2005, a very senior government person, intel person, sat me down once. And I remember asking about John Bolton uh, because he had just become around then. I forget. I think it was uh, U.S. ambassador to the United Nations. I said, what do you think of this guy? And I can't repeat on air what he said. And I knew that the guy and this guy has now since passed away, so I wouldn't be revealing any well i mean i guess you still have to keep your confidence even when someone passes away but he wouldn't be in any reputational damage or anything um so i always now i have no beef with bolton personally i don't i don't know him i i think he's a neocon warmonger i think that's a fair criticism i think he's very quick to send your children or some of you listening to this to go fight in far off battlefields with no hope of real lasting strategic victory that's for sure um but just the two things, not pre-publishing, not pre-clearing the book, and also the disloyalty involved in this, makes me think that this guy is being scummy. And I'll tell you about more of the stories that he tells tomorrow. You're in the Freedom Hut. This is the Buck Sexton Show podcast. we got a first-timer on the show joining us now to talk about what's going on with the Capitol Hill Occupy protest in Seattle, the attempt to replicate it in Portland, and just what the left, the crazy stuff the left has been up to in general. Ian Miles Chong of Human Events is with us now. Ian, great to have you on, man. Welcome. Thanks for having me on. How's it going? Uh, you know, I mean, the country's in rough shape right now. I know, I know you're actually outside the continental U.S., but you're following very closely mm-hmm. the situation in Seattle. What can you tell us about the latest and from your research into this group? How's the Capitol Hill Occupy protest coming along? Um, I think um, it's coming along the way they want it to come along, right? There's not much organization, but it's uh, it certainly got the uh, city of Seattle looking really bad, and it's inspiring uh, Antifa across the country, other parts of the country, to uh, essentially try to do the same thing. But it's not really working out so well uh, in that regard. I mean, in Seattle, I'm not really sure why they haven't shut that down yet. And the longer it goes on, you know, the more it's going to inspire. But uh, last night, uh, they tried to set up a autonomous zone, so to speak, in, uh, in Portland, in, uh, in front of Mayor Ted Wheeler's house. Uh, it didn't last very long. The police tore it down this morning. Wait a second. So... So the mayor of Portland, who, who is uh, definitely somebody who's very favorable to the left, they wanted to set up an Occupy thing in front of his house, and he had the cops go yep. right in there and shut that whole thing down right away. Almost like these guys on the left, these left-wing Democrat politicians, when it's in their neighborhood, in this case, right in their, uh, almost in their yard, 
then Occupy stuff mm-hmm. isn't so cute anymore, Ian. Yeah, it's not. Yeah, imagine if they uh, would have set it up in front of the, uh, the mayor's uh, house in Seattle. I'm sure she would have it shut down immediately. But instead, uh, she's, she's claiming it's the uh, summer of love. It's like a, it's got a block party atmosphere. Uh, any news station that goes down there is, uh, reports that it's a, it's a really nice place. Everybody's happy and it's not really serious. Except uh, you know when the protesters come by, the Antifa people come by, and they get upset. They're like, no, it is very serious, and you need to stop calling it a a block party because it is not a block party. For these people, these vagrants, you know, whatever you want to call them, people living in Chaz or Chop or whatever, it's very serious for them. For this, for them, this is like a, it's like a revolution. It's more than just Occupy Wall Street was uh, eight years ago. Now it's like they're fighting against capitalism. They're fighting against white supremacy. It's a, uh, they, they said they'll they'll win by any means necessary. This is in interviews that they have given. All their leaders are saying this. Uh, so, you know, the fact that people are trying to downplay it, it may not work to their favor. I think uh, we'll, we'll have to see how much longer this whole thing is able to continue on. To that end, Ian, do we have any sense of whether the protesters are in contact or, or are still calling for other cities? We know Portland tried here, and they're, they're certainly thinking yep. back to the Occupy movement of 2011, which went on for months and was in lots of cities all over the country in different ways. That was usually people seizing public space of some kind, a park, a square. Do we have any sense as to whether they're trying to expand still? And also, are their demands staying the same? Yes, the demands are staying the same. It's, it's all about abolishing the police, abolishing the state. You know, it's one at a time, but they are intending to uh, dismantle the United States of America. They're very serious about this. And they have expanded, uh, at least they tried to expand to, uh, to Asheville, uh, North Carolina. It was shut down as well. It was last week that they tried this. But they keep trying. They keep trying. But police locally uh, have uh, less patience uh, in, in most cities than they do in Seattle, it seems, or at least the cities have less patience. So I don't think they'll be as successful there, but they can keep trying. And, uh, you know, as long as this keeps going on, as long as no one's stepping in to stop the anarchy and the chaos, you know, it's got this uh, broken window effect of uh uh, you know, policing on, on the rest of the city uh, cities in the United States of America. And that's not very good. No, that is certainly not a good thing. But it is interesting to watch the police. And I know you've been sharing some of the video here of what happened in Portland. They they deployed officers and they shut this thing down. Maybe, maybe they're learning lessons in some of these very blue cities about, you know, you give you give the loony left an inch, they're going to take a mile. Um, but I also wanted to ask you about uh, what you're seeing well, this is interesting. You're in Malaysia right now. I know you write for Human Events. You're the managing yep. editor there. Um, but you're in Malaysia, and we have this whole surge of a return to the COVID lockdown here. I, I want to talk to you about that in the U.S. context. But since you're in a foreign country mm-hmm. and since they've had to deal with COVID-19, what's it like over there right now with, with, uh, with this pandemic? Well, the lockdowns have been really, really strict. I mean, take the, uh, the lockdowns that you've seen in perhaps the strictest places in America and multiply it by 10. People were getting arrested just for going out for a walk over here. And But people, for the most part, they got used to it after a while. You know, there were a few uh, hundred or a few thousand arrests early on. And, uh, you know, they wanted to let people know that everything was serious, that people were serious. As a result, you know, we've had in Malaysia uh, fewer than 200 deaths. It's uh, something like 120 deaths total. And keep in mind, this is a uh, country has a population of 30 plus million. It's uh, some places very densely packed. And most people, it seems, who were infected were uh, 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 illegal immigrants uh, living in very, very close uh, spaces because everybody else, you know, like the uh, uh, the old folks especially, they were not really affected because 
they were not exposed to uh, to people with it. Now, you know, this is the opposite of what happened in New York City, where because of uh, Cuomo's orders, uh, most old people who were already exposed to it uh, were basically spreading it to each other in these uh, old folks' homes. And uh, as a result, many of them, you know, 46%, I think, or 46,000 people uh, died in America, and they were all in these ca uh, these care homes. So that was a bad policy. Maybe uh, we should open it up a bit. But, you know, not necessarily open up the stores, but allow people to go outside and walk because no one's getting sick on the outside. You're going to a beach, you know, you're not interacting with somebody uh, face to face. I don't see why uh, why that needs to. So what's it like? What's it like there now? I mean, you said they're lo Are you still under the very strict lockdown or have things relaxed? No, the lockdowns are over. The lockdowns have been relaxed. The only things that haven't opened are maybe uh, pubs, you know, bars, but everything else, even restaurants have all completely reopened. Uh I was at a, a barber yesterday, as a matter of fact, and uh, they did some track and tracing stuff where, you know, the, the barber, he came up to me, he had a thermometer, he checked my temperature, uh, I signed a, a piece of paper and put my phone number there, no address, you know, basically informing uh, other people that if, if so, the idea is that if somebody's sick, then people on this day would be contacted, right? He'd reach out and, and say, hey, you know, you probably should get tested. So uh, that's about uh, the uh, extent of it. The businesses are open, you know, everything's fine. Uh, you just have to just sanitize, right? I didn't even wear a mask. That's the thing. I, it wasn't required. No one's required to do so because uh, everybody's playing it safe, playing it clean, you know? All right. Well, Ian, keep up the good work over to Human Events, my friend. Thank you very much for joining us, and we'll talk to you soon. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Ain't no party like a Team Buck party, because a Team Buck party don't stop. Yeah, we got Buck turned up to 11. It's time for Roll Call. Indeed, Roll Call time. One of my favorite times. And tomorrow, remember, we will have Roll Call voicemail, the penalty box. Producer Mark will make sure that we've got some great. Have we, have we already got some good ones lined up? I don't know. That's how I spend my Thursday evenings now. Yeah. Mrs. Mark is going to be unhappy with me at some point here. But, you know, for right now, it is nice to hear the folks, their voices on the show. So I'm glad I'm you enjoy it. I'm sure we've got some good ones. They the, the folks appreciate it. They appreciate it. So any any news from uh, producer Mark World this week or everything pretty much just status quo? I, I don't really do anything, Buck. I stay in my apartment all day, all night. Well, that's everybody, though. You know, we're all you know, when they used to say we're all in this together, that wasn't true politically, but we are all in this together. insofar as if you live in a place still under lockdown, you pretty much have the choices of being at home, working from home, eating and sleeping. I mean, either way, when we're working from home, where, where am I going to go? I don't even have a car anymore. That's a good point. Huh? Yeah. yeah. City's very quiet, very quiet right now. Definitely not going to New York City for a trip, that's for sure. That's for sure. Things get, uh, things get spicy here. Ernest, I wish you would disregard Alex Jones in considering Austin. He doesn't have any more presence here than anywhere else. Oh, okay. Ernest, I'm going to eat you. I'm going to eat Ernest, my neighbor. Eat him. Um, I live in a moderately bo uh, bougie neighborhood, and this morning during my morning walk, I noticed Honk If You Care 
chalked on the sidewalk next to the obligatory fist. But it's way less imperious than NYC. Just some kids virtue signaling. As for Chaz, they don't want to be autonomous now because as a sovereign nation, their military would have to face ours. Um, well, Ernest, it sounds like a kind of uh, a, a drop in the in the pile for move to Austin. So we'll have to see if that works out. I have a family member who's going to be spending a lot of time in Austin coming up here soon, and he may be moving there. So we might have a sort of team buck, uh, team buck bro outpost, if you know what I mean, down there. One of my brothers might be spending a lot of time in Austin. So I'll be hearing about it from him and I'll be certainly I'm definitely going to be visiting him. So. That means that I will be spending some time down there. Producer Mark, I'll do the proper recon. Don't worry. All right. Thanks. I appreciate it. That's what I'm here for. Michael, a buck, a point that seems to be missed about social media and cancel culture is that it is a perfect example of the oppression of a pure democracy, something the founders warned us of. The shouts, disruptions and tyranny of the mob drown out all thoughts or ideas they disagree with, despite the protection of the Bill of Rights. The real danger is if this cancer escapes the Internet and gains overwhelming power in the real world. It illustrates the danger of pure democracy and the fundamental importance of our republic and the Bill of Rights for us all shields high. Michael, um, that's yeah, I mean, I, I agree with your assessment of why a pure democracy and really what you're referring to would be called oclocracy or a mobocracy. Uh, Oclos. O-C-H-L-O-S in ancient Greek being, I believe, the mob or the crowd. So an oclocracy is ruled by the mob. And we are seeing what that's like right now. And it's also a reminder that the Constitution only defends us if enough people buy into what the Constitution is and says and are willing to defend it. Right? The Constitution is an idea, right? If you're out in the street and you get mobbed, by a bunch of, you know, Antifa thugs and they start throwing rocks at you and you start yelling, but I'm protected by the Constitution. The Constitution's not going to arrive on a helicopter and uh, kick their butts and save you. Right. I mean, Constitution is not some superhero that arrives just in the nick of time. Nope. So you have to think of this as unless we have widespread agreement throughout our society on the value, on the necessity of the Constitution, then it is, it is just a piece of paper. I mean, it's an idea, right? And the idea is supposed to bind so many of our other institutions, and it's the foundation for our, our institutions. It is the original creation document for them. Um, but people will discard it. And now you've got Supreme Court justices who are discarding it, and a majority of them. And they're doing it on issues that really matter. That's very troubling. Uh, I can't say that I think that that's a good thing for our future. It's really, uh, it's very concerning. Uh, Tammy, dear Buck, I've been with you since the beginning, OSS, and I'm so happy to tell you the radio station in central Kansas, where I'm the office manager, is adding your show to our lineup starting July 6th. Sorry for yelling, but I'm quite excited about this. I've been talking about this for years in the office, uh, for, about you for years in the office. I cannot wait for our Central Kansas listeners to hear the Buck Saxton show. Well, Tammy, that's awesome. Thank you. Wow, that's great. We got a listener that's lobbying for us to get added to a station, and now we're on that station, Producer Mark. See, Team Buck really helps us out when we need it. Another one. See what happened there with the station? Yeah. You're going to lose all your cool cards soon enough. I know. I got I to gotta come up with a different cool It's like, it's like you're a dad without a child. Yeah, I know. 
That's, that's, that's actually a pretty good description of me, I think. I, I've got dad-like tendencies without actually being a dad yet, you know? I like dad jeans. I like dad bod, you know. But, dad but jokes. Not, dad jokes. Uh, but I got to, yeah, I got to actually be a dad. All right. Um, but, Tammy, that is awesome. Thank you so much. And uh, we're excited. I don't even know. You know this before I do. I'm not even, I don't even know what this station is. So it hasn't been announced to me yet. So that's great news. Got some listeners in central Kansas coming our way. Nikolai, producer Mark may be wrong. I believe the man hater you uh, expression you were looking for is Joy Behar. Producer Mark, why aren't you spending more time with Joy? I and don't even know how to respond to that. Yeah, that's probably a fair point. Uh, yeah, Joy Behar is, uh, look, she is quite a character. I mean, you can say that about her. So, and she's on the view. Uh, she's on the view. There's that. I've said, I've said all I'm going to say on that for today. I do and I don't. Uh, Kyle writes, Buck, there used to be a yacht in Palm Beach named the Buck Passer that was owned by the Phipps family. Every time I hear about passing the buck, I think of that vessel. If you move down here, you could carry on the name when you buy your first boat. Bonus points, you could also participate in the Trump boat parades. The Buck Passer. I love that. That's awesome. If I have a boat, that would be a great name for it. Great. Well, wouldn't I be passing myself? I mean, I guess that's true. Hmm. I'll get a boat and name it the Buck Passer. Isn't there, uh, wasn't the the video game with the gun, you shoot the deer, wasn't it Buckmaster? I think it's Buck Hunter. Oh, Buck. Because you're hunting bucks. That, I think you're right. I think you're right. Well, wasn't there a, was there a show called Buckmaster? I don't know. Well, I can I can look. Or maybe it's a maybe it's a like a a camo a camo clothing company or something. I'm telling you, there's something. Tell me what the buck mask. There's something that's a buck mask. Big Buck Hunter is that is like at arcades. I just googled it. Yeah, that's Buck Hunter. No, no, I know, I know, I know. Buck ma- Oh, there's a Google. There's a website for deer hunting. Buckmasters, everything for. Uh, buck I'm Master, giving them everything. See, I told you. I'm not. I'm giving crazy. them free. Publicity here, yeah, but, free you know. pub. You know, I should probably get a sponsorship from them, right? I That'd mean, be nice. Adver- Buck advertising for Buckmaster. Yeah, it's like uh, you know, it's like PB and J with Nutella. It's just going to be amazing. Gross. Is that gross? I tried to. I hate peanut that. butter, so you can't ask me that question. But I find That's that gross. A, I would not have expected that. Yeah, no, despite, it's my least favorite food. Wow. Yeah. So no Reese's Pieces for you? None. Like, even the smell of peanut butter makes me want to vomit. Wow, okay. I know it's a hot take, but... That is that is a that is a sizzling hot take from Producer Mark. All right, let's get to... Oh, and Kyle already told us about the yacht. Well, I've got a yacht called the Buck Passer. It's very fancy. It's fantastic. It goes fast, and the crew is excellent. Uh, Jay... Buck, love the show. I truly believe that once Rush retires, you will be the conservative voice on radio. About the recent uh, Supreme Court decisions, I have some thoughts. Uh, Jay, thank you for that. It's very kind of you. Which I was thrilled to see echoed in articles by the Federalist when I woke up this morning. Regarding the LGBT decision, I think Gorsuch is playing the long game. It may be a short-term victory for the LGBT folks, But by introducing the issue of sex specifically, I think he is laying the groundwork for later determining what is the definition of sex gender. Um, 
Jay, I first of all, thank you for your kind words about me and the show, and that that means a lot. Uh, I I have no idea what how we can. Uh, I I don't see this. I don't see this. I, may, maybe you're seeing something I don't with Gorsuch playing the long game. I'm I'm gonna have to process. I'm gonna have to process and think on that one a little bit. I think this was nothing but an abdication of his constitutional responsibility and. And it's because Gorsuch doesn't want to be doesn't want to be the bad guy. You know, it's not fun to be the bad guy. The libs, the left, they come after you. They control the culture. It's no good. So uh, but let me think about how this could be laying. This is what you were laying the groundwork for later determining what is the definition of sex. How would that come up in court? Uh, What is the definition of sex slash gender? Um, I don't see it, Jay, but I appreciate the thought and I'm going to think on it more. And I, I always uphold that I, I could be missing something. I mean, this audience is full of people who are insightful and brilliant. And, you know, I don't know everything. That's why I got to have producer Mark here to make sure I'm reminded sometimes of uh, when I get something wrong, you know, so. Or when I am late. I'm very good at Googling and sports knowledge. It's Googling and sports knowledge. That's right. You're in the Freedom Hut. This is the Buck Sexton Show podcast. More roll call. Dan writes, Sexton, your call to action among conservatives on Tuesday's show is great, but needs concrete steps. Otherwise, it isn't a true call to action. The left excels in this arena, and we on the right need to take some cues from their playbook. For example... Any corporate entity that capitulates to the mob no longer gets my business. This means I will never watch a New Orleans Saints game like Drew Brees or or Drew Brees rather buy a Saints jersey, physically visit New Orleans or even play as the Saints on Madden 20. The left is extremely good at hitting where it hurts the wallet. We need to get better at that. Dan, I think you're right about taking individual action that takes into account what your principles are and who you want to support. Um, I, you know, the Drew Brees thing, it, this reminds me a little of that coach from Oklahoma State as well, where, you know, look, these guys want to keep their jobs. And and I I wish they had the, the courage of their convictions, but, you know, they're, they're going to apologize. But people who are supposed to be in the idea business or who are politicians, uh, for them to bend the knee is where I really just lose all patience. But that said, Dan, yeah, I think you should put your dollars exactly where you think they should go. And support those who share your values and are spreading messages uh, that are helpful to the country. And if that means, and look, I, I'm going to tell you this: if they start doing kneeling a lot at these NFL games, once the NFL starts again, I'm not going to watch. And I used to watch. But producer Mark is laughing. I did used to watch a fair amount of football. I'm not going to watch NFL games. I'm not going to do it. Not going to do it. Uh, so I, I also don't understand why the president brought up yesterday that Colin Kaepernick should get another shot. I. I the president, I feel like I've been, you know, I've really understood where he's coming from on so many things for so long. And I, I'm not surprised by a lot of them. A lot of things that he does that the mainstream media goes, oh, I don't understand. I'm like, oh, of course, that's what Trump did. It doesn't shock me at all. I'm not really seeing the Trump matrix right now. It's a little. It's not clear to me what it, what's going on. I, I think that some, there's like a disturbance in the force of Trumpism. Something's happening right now. And I, I can't give you a better explanation of it than that. Derek, after listening to Wednesday's pod, you seem somewhat defeated. While I understand the sentiment, I don't think things are quite as bad as you think. My wife and I are black, and we've been speaking out more and more about our support for Trump and conservatism in general. 
We're seeing more people who are at least thinking about how out of touch the left is. Additionally, I work for a very liberal institution and have picked my spots to speak up. I really hope we'll win this war. Shields high. Well, Derek, hey, I need to hear that. Thank you so much for writing in. It sounds like you are executing on your own action plan for conservatism in this country and uh, making this a better country for all of us. Even the crazy libs get to live in the better country that we're trying to make, right? I I want freedom for everybody. I want... I want constitutional protections and individual liberty and economic prosperity and freedom of speech and freedom of religion. I want this for everyone, even the crazy Antifa, even the crazy left wing libs who want to silence everybody and all this other stuff. I want them to be living in a better, more free, more prosperous country. I'm not looking to have them destroyed, ruined, humiliated, all this other stuff. And I'm certainly not looking to do that to fellow conservatives uh, in the media who are uh, fighting for the same cause, although some people who you would think would be above that are not. Um, Let's see here. Angela. But Derek, thank you so much. And Shields, hi to you. Angela. Hey, Buck. I can even begin to arc. I can't even begin. I'm going to have to add the T for her. I can't even begin to articulate how frustrated I am. At what point? Will the American conservatives unite, stand up, and say enough already? We, including me, have sat back and the left pushed us around and forced all their ideas on us. I certainly don't approve of racism nor any race being mistreated, but we've gone way beyond that. What if every conservative refuses to buy any tickets or merchandise if NASCAR removes the national anthem? What if every conservative refuses to spend a dime with Amazon until they remove their Blue Lives Kill shirts? I don't even know that was a thing. What if conservatives say they won't attend another Oklahoma State game or even pay for their kids to go there if their system is going to cave to someone offended by a news channel T-shirt? At what point are we going to say, shove it? We are done caving in to your crazy leftism. Angela, well put, well written, well said. Um, This is if we want this to change, then we have to change it. If we want this to be different, this is the way uh, what you're talking about taking action is just the way to do it and individuals can take action that really does matter now going to the um now going to the instagram account buck Sexton on instagram we've got uh mark who writes longtime freedom hut listener would you be able to provide some insight into how a young professional can work in one of the federal agencies like the CIA, FBI, it's been tough getting more info uh, online. Any tips would help. Uh, yeah, Mark, find people like me who are retired or left those places and left on good terms with them and ask them, reach out to them. Anybody who worked at FBI or CIA uh, who cared about the mission will care about good people going to work there and uh, going forward. So just find people that you can talk to in person and they'll help guide you. Uh, That's going to be it for today, team. Please pass the buck. Go to BuckSexton.com. Spread the podcast around. Shields high.